was an outward flow from Ireland of emigrants during the first um, four decades of the new Irish state, founded in 1922. So a steady stream of young men and women migrated to Britain in search of work. Among other problems, it seemed that many of the migrants were tubercular or soon became ill with tuberculosis. J.B. Lyons, an Irish doctor working in Crumsall Hospital in Manchester in the 1940s and early 1950s, noted that it was an axiom in English medical schools to suspect tuberculosis in young Irish adults. The Irish were seen as blameworthy importers and disseminators of Irish tubercle germs into Britain, or alternatively as innocent susceptible virgin soil receptive to British germs. There was, of course, a third possibility. The tubercular Irish were a chimera, a product of both cultures with poor socioeconomic circumstances in Britain, causing old legions acquired during an Irish childhood to be reactivated. Health became part of migration rhetoric, with anxiety in Britain that immigrants could literally contaminate the native population. In Ireland, sick emigrants who returned to their communities were often constructed as contributing to the country's already substantial tuberculosis problem. Indeed, in 1957, it was claimed that 10% of tuberculosis cases on the Irish Register occurred in this way, being infected by returning immigrants. Nicholas King points to the importance of um, essentialist versus non-essentialist explanations. An essentialist understanding focuses on pre-existing factors such as race, ethnicity and nationality, whereas an anti-essentialist understanding focuses on contingent factors such as poverty social dispar- and social disparity, rather than assuming pre-existing factors determine health disparity. Responses vary depending on this understanding, with one obvious response to an essentialist understanding being to keep the diseased race outside the borders of the land of those free from that disease. However, it's never that easy. Um, health policy is also influenced by economic and employment imperatives. John Welshman and Alison have both contributed much to the understanding of debates about disease, borders and geographies of, dis- of difference. In particular, John has noted the British government's determinedly low-key response with respect to the emotive issue of tuberculosis in Irish migrants in the 1950s. He suggests that localism and pragmatism drove the policy of maintaining open borders without compulsory medical examination at the port of entry. This paper will focus more narrowly and extend back over an earlier time period to reflect on the existence of, uh, sorry, to reflect on the experience of one useful occupational group, Irish nurses in England, who by and large staffed the less desirable hospitals and wards. The evidence for Irish nurses being proportionately more tubercular than their English counterparts will firstly be examined. Next, this paper will consider the role of Irish and British epidemiological studies in providing a new understanding of the experience of Irish immigrant nurses with respect to tuberculosis. The work of the Irish National BCG vaccination campaign, which began in 1949, will be scrutinised. This campaign singled out young Irish immigrants as being a vulnerable group. The extent to which this rhetoric of concern was translated into actual vaccinations will be interrogated. Finally, the relevance of the debates which took place between 1930 and 1960 with respect to Irish emigrant nurses to the current debates about immigrant nurses coming into Ireland will be outlined. And just to give you a little uh, background with apologies to Sinead and others to whom this is completely old hat, 
The diagnosis of tuberculosis has long presented difficulties. Symptoms often mimic other conditions. Typical symptoms of pulmonary disease, the most common form of tuberculosis in an adult, include fever, night sweats, cough, loss of weight, difficulty in breathing, and possibly hemoptysis, or the coughing up of blood that we normally associate with tuberculosis. A tubercular patient might exhibit some, but not all, of these symptoms, while a patient suffering from a different disease could present a similar clinical picture. In the first two decades of the Irish state, the diagnostic process used in Ireland typically relied upon family history, as given by the patient or another member of the family, clinical symptoms, and sometimes X-ray evidence or laboratory culture of the causative mycobacterium. Neither X-rays nor laboratory facilities were widely available prior to the late 1940s in Ireland. Similarly, tuberculin testing, which had been refined on the continent in the first decade of the 20th century, into a useful diagnostic skin test was not widely used in Ireland till the end of the 1940s. The value of tuberculin testing has been much debated. However, as a general rule, it is accepted that someone who is tuberculin positive has previously been exposed to tuberculosis. However, the mere fact of infection with tuberculosis does not imply the beginnings of an active disease. Many infected persons never develop disease. So being tuberculin positive merely means that a person has been exposed to tuberculosis. On the other hand, a person who is tuberculin negative has not been exposed to tuberculosis and as such is susceptible to infection. Artificial immunological protection in the form of BCG vaccine, which was first used in humans in Paris in 1921, was not generally available in Ireland until the late 1940s and in Britain until the early 1950s. The efficacy and safety of BCG was widely debated throughout the 20th century, while there was no effective cure for tuberculosis for most of the first half of that century. So what did all of this mean for young Irish women migrating to Britain to train or work as nurses between 1930 and 1960? In general, nurses were, and indeed they are still, exposed to more infectious diseases, including tuberculosis, than their peers in non-clinical settings. So as such, their health has long been a locus of concern. Becoming ill with tuberculosis would, at best, have meant a long absence from work, and at worst, might have ended in death. Um, the concern about nurses, per se, contracting tuberculosis predates the debates about Irish nurses in Britain. In a widely cited long-term study commenced in Norway in the 1920s, Johannes Heinbeck used tuberculin testing to determine previous exposure to tuberculosis among the entrants to the nursing school in Ullaville <coughs> Hospital in Oslo. He found that half of the student nurses were not infected with tuberculosis at the time of entry, and that virtually all of these tuberculin-negative nurses became infected during their three-year training. This was at variance with received wisdom, and according to Barvite, it fundamentally changed the understanding of the pathogenesis of tuberculosis. Student nurses were offered BCG vaccination by Heimbeck, while his colleague Scheel organised a similar product among medical students. Heimbeck's work reduced the incidence of tuberculosis to one-sixth among those who were vaccinated. Heimbeck found that, and I quote, once immunity, natural or BCG-induced, um, was established, there was very little subsequent morbidity. The positive effect of BCG appeared to be durable over the two decades of his study, and the critical years for vaccination for nurses was during training. In the Scandinavian countries, tuberculin testing became widespread and indeed became mandatory for many occupations. This use of tuberculin testing was later adopted on the other side of the Atlantic in Canada, Canada where Orgy Ferguson vaccinated 1,800 tuberculin-negative nurses with BCG in the 1940s. 
In England, there was also concern about nurses developing tuberculosis and debate about how best to tackle the issue. A large-scale study, the Long-Term Profit Survey, which tracked tuberculosis susceptibility, morbidity and mortality in 10,000 young adults, including 5,000 nursing entrants, was commenced in 1935. In light of the repeated exposure to tubercular nurses, to, sorry, to tubercular patients, it's not surprising that the survey found that the, the morbidity rates for nurses and for medical students who were included in the study during their clinical period was higher than for other occupational groups. The study was not designed to capture the experience of immigrant nurses, but the additional dangers faced by immigrant nurses soon became evident. Morbidity was two and a half times as high in Irish and Welsh nurses as in their English counterparts. Indeed, the experience of Irish and Welsh nurses was so different that for the purposes of overall conclusions, the Irish and Welsh nurses were removed from the cohort so the results would not be skewed. The final report of the Profit Survey was published in 1948, but a number of interim reports which were published in the BMJ kept the issue under scrutiny as the survey progressed. In 1945, a call by Dr Wingfield in the BMJ for wide publicity with respect to the dangers of nursing the tubercular was refuted in a very terse letter to the editor written by Drs Edwards and Penman, who felt that, and I quote, narrow publicity among those responsible for the health of hospital staff would be more useful and less likely to diminish even further the number of entrants to tuberculosis nursing. Edwards pointed out that 25% of the student nurses in Cheshire Sanatorium where he was working were tubercular negative on entry. If they were excluded, he argued, a proportionate number of beds would have to close. In a subsequent paper on tuberculosis among sanatorium nurses, Edwards further elaborated his argument in favour of employing the tuberculin negative nurse, but, placing, but putting in place a regime of care including frequent tuberculin tests and x-rays. Edward's study also pointed up the experience of Irish emigrant nurses. He found a much higher incidence of tuberculin negativity among this group. Of the 94 healthy Irish entrants, 45% were tuberculin negative. These accounted for two-thirds of the overall tuberculin negative cohort. Among the case studies detailed in his report, Edwards included an 18-year-old Irish girl who joined the staff on September 19, 1937. Case 12, as he called her, was tuberculin negative, but converted to being positive in three months, indicating recent infection. And I'm quoting from him now. Nine months later, she developed an acute febrile illness after a stormy crossing from Ireland while suffering from a heavy cold. A left pleural effusion developed, which cleared rapidly without aspiration. She was in bed for three months and had a further month of modified duty. She's well and working as a ward sister in 1945. Edwards concluded that tuberculin negative reactors must be employed and looked after, as it was, and again I'm quoting, not possible for the average country institution drawing its nurses and maids from rural districts and from Ireland to exclude tuberculin negative reactors. As another study carried out among nursing staff, this is staff now rather than entrance to nursing, in Crumsell Hospital in Manchester from 1934 to 48, provided further evidence of Irish nurses' susceptibility to tuberculosis. J.B. Lyons found that over the five years, there were nine notified cases of tuberculosis, two fatal. Of those with notified disease, five, including a case of millary tuberculosis, were Irish. Two were Welsh and one was English. In addition to the fatalities, the Irish nurses, who were a minority among the nursing staff in the hospital, contracted the most severe forms of tuberculosis. 
Lyon's explanation for Irish nurses' increased vulnerability to tuberculosis was a mixture of essentialist and anti-essentialist understandings. As he concluded that there were three determining factors in Irish nurses developing tuberculosis, a racial factor, or what has been termed an absence of immunity, an economic factor, and an absence of previous infection. The conditions under which any type of migratory Irish worker is employed is, as a rule, the most arduous obtaining for that type of work, he asserted. The finding by J.B. Lyons and by Edwards and Penman that Irish nurses were more vulnerable in contracting tuberculosis than their English counterparts was strongly reinforced when the final report of the much larger scale profit survey came out. It recorded a morbidity rate of 27% in the 984 Irish and Welsh nursing entrants. Two of these died. The other 4,060 nursing entrants, who were mainly English, had a morbidity rate of 10.7%, or almost one-third that of the Irish and Welsh nurses. Four of these died. Again, the finding was that Irish and Welsh nurses were proportionately sicker than their English counterparts, with the rate of sanatoria treatment reaching 60% among the Irish and Welsh, compared with 36% among the English. More Irish nurses were employed in the harsher environments of the eight-type hospitals. However, as living conditions, diet and work were the same for the Irish, Welsh and English in each hospital group, the profit survey concluded that the susceptibility of the Irish and Welsh nurses had to be due to a valid racial difference, and the word Celtic was used here. However, an Irish doctor, Dorothy Price, who had carried out the first studies on tuberculin sensitivity in Ireland, beginning in the mid-1930s, interpreted the data differently. Her epidemiological work showed that Irish adolescents had a surprisingly low level of tuberculin positivity and that there was a strong urban-rural divide, with those in the country less likely to have been exposed to tuberculosis. Similarly, the incidence of tuberculin sensitivity among Irish and Welsh nursing entrants in the profit survey varied depending on their prior geographical location, with nurses from rural backgrounds being more likely to be tuberculin negative. Price duly attributed the Irish nurses' tuberculin negativity to a lack of prior exposure to tuberculosis. She wrote to Mark Daniels, the profit scholar, telling him that tuberculosis in Ireland in the younger age groups was a killing disease, with the ratio of morbidity to mortality probably much lower than in England. Price also posited that internal migration from rural to urban Irish hospitals, as well as migration across borders, placed nursing students at risk of contracting the disease. The Profit Survey's essentialist recognition of genetic factors did not prevent suggestions as to how the Irish and Welsh might be better protected. A greater concentration on living and working conditions and exposure factors was advocated. And the Profit Survey also suggested, however, when he took up a single paragraph in a 227-page report, that results of immunisation by BCG or vaccine have in the past been interesting enough to warrant further serious study. Price was an avid proponent of BCG, and she used her non-essentialist reading of the various tuberculin sensitivity studies to propose using BCG vaccination as a primary measure to protect young rural girls who were tuberculin negative and who were considering moving to urban hospitals in Ireland, in either Ireland or Britain, where they would be exposed to much more tuberculosis. The response in Ireland was ad hoc. The Department of Local Government and Health and its successor, the Department of Health, did not at this stage include BCG vaccination as part of the national anti-tuberculosis strategy. The emphasis was on bed provision rather than prevention. So hospitals in Ireland, by and large, determined their own policies with respect to nurses and tuberculosis. 
By the end of the 1940s, it had become the norm that matrons of almost all general hospitals in the Republic made it a condition of entry that probationer nurses were to be tuberculin tested and subsequently these neg- negative reactors were to be vaccinated before admission to training. In Britain, BCG vaccine was the subject of competing discourses in the medical journals throughout the mid to late 1940s, with an increasing number of voices now in favour of vaccination. An editorial in Tubercle, the journal of the British Tuberculosis Association, in September 1946 was trenchant. I quote, In in Mantu negative nurses, opinion appears unanimous that there is an obligation to use BCG. That same year, FRG Heath, the chief tuberculosis officer in London, wrote in the Irish Journal of Medical Science that the use of skin testing in the pre-employment of nurses in Britain was being appreciated and a number of authorities were not allowing Mantu negative nurses to work in tuberculosis wards until six months after conversion to positive reaction. Noting the near collapse of the sanatoria from lack of staff and the reliance on Irish nurses, F.B. Smith states that BCG slipped into Britain about 1947 as propaganda to comfort sanatoria nurses. As in Ireland, this comfort was offered by individual hospitals rather than as part of a national policy. In three years later, in 1949, a leading article in Tuberkel again decried that nurses in Britain were still being denied the use of this preventive measure. In Ireland, a national BCG committee was finally set up in 1949 under the chairmanship of Dorothy Price. But two and a half years after the committee began its work of mass vaccination, many young Irish girls going to Britain to train as nurses still had not been vaccinated. J.B. Lyons' Manchester study, published in 1951, which I've already mentioned in connection with staff nurses, also looked at trainee nurses. And it found that of 91 nurses in training, tested with tuberculin prior to being placed on duty in the wards, of the English nurses, 23% were negative. Of the Irish nurses, 43% were tuberculin negative. So this meant that almost half of the Irish trainee nurses had not come into contact with tuberculosis, nor had they been vaccinated. Lyons echoed Price about the absence of previous infection in those who had comparatively sheltered lives or came from rural districts when placed in a milieu where it's commonplace to encounter the infecting organism. And he added further contingent analysis as young nursing trainees, newly embarked upon their working careers, had recently been freed from parental restraint and deprived of maternal vigilance at a time of very active growth and endocrine change. Lyons wrote that he had yet to meet a single migratory Irish worker who had had BCG. The BCG committee was aware of the need to vaccinate emigrants. Indeed, as it expanded its work, it began to provide further evidence of this need itself. Tuberculin testing was a precursor to BCG vaccination. So as a byproduct of its work, the BCG committee had also begun to accumulate statistics with respect to tuberculin status in various Irish counties. By 1952, it had been found that two-thirds of young Irish adults tested in rural county Roscommon were tuberculin negative, while a similar situation pertained in rural Kerry. Overall, of six rural counties surveyed, an average of 50% of young adults in the age bracket 18 to 30 were tuberculin negative. Rural young Irish people from these counties were the most likely to emigrate. The results of National Committee's te- the National Committee's tuberculin testing were supported by the results of a separate survey in County of Ascommon, which was published in 1954. It was even more striking, demonstrating that only 14.5% of young adults were positive at the age of 18. Michael Flynn, the author of this study, concluded it was obvious that the young adult, the potential emigrant, was most vulnerable, and it should be where the BCG campaign was concentrated. However, without legal obligation, this group was difficult to target. 
Young emigrants did not respond to the various demonstrations of their vulnerability by seeking vaccination. A continuous theme throughout the first five annual reports of the National BCG Committee from 1949 to 1954 was the need to reach these adults and the difficulties in getting them to volunteer for vaccination. A national tuberculosis survey had been commenced in 1952, headed by James Deeney, and its report criticised the slow rollout of the BCG campaign. British medical journals and the Irish media picked up the criticisms and the argument in favour of vaccination of intending emigrants. The Irish press emphasised five facts on emigration, pointing out that BCG vaccination was essential. The Irish Times wrote of the numbers of emigrants who returned each year to Ireland as invalids and the incalculable damage done by these cases in infecting their relatives, not to mention the costs involved to the state. Dirty Price was asked by the Government Information Bureau on behalf of the Department of Health to issue a summary of the situation and to encourage emigrants to seek BCG before going abroad. It was suggested that compulsory BCG vaccination for every young Irish adult should be considered. However, vaccination remained voluntary. The National BCG's Committee's report for 1954 did, however, report with evident pride that its findings had caused a complete reversal of medical opinion concerning the Irish the young Irish emigrant in tuberculosis, stating it has at last been generally recognised that he is not to be shunned for fear of contracting tuberculosis from him, that rather he is in need of protection. In July 1955, a British MP, Dr Barnett Strauss, having been, and I quote, first armed with this committee's reports, tendered an apology in the House of Commons for his previous misunderstanding of the problem. He suggested chest X-ray and tuberculin testing of intending migrants, followed by BCG vaccination of negative reactors, should be carried out by the Irish authorities in order to protect young Irish people emigrating to England. Advertisements were placed by the National BCG Committee in Irish newspapers informing would-be emigrants that if they intended to emigrate, BCG vaccination against tuberculosis is as important for you as your travel ticket. It also seemed expedient to point out to young emigrants that if they didn't get vaccinated at home, they could now do so in Britain, which had begun to make BCG freely available following the first report of the British Medical Research Council's large-scale vaccine trial. In December 1957, the BCG Committee commissioned posters in English and in Irish, and these were displayed in 2,800 post offices in Ireland. Meanwhile, records of vaccination were increasingly being requested by nursing schools at home and abroad. During the mid to late 1950s, tuberculosis declined more rapidly in England than in Ireland, and concern about tubercular Irish migrants extended beyond nurses to include the wider migrant community. In 1954, Hess and MacDonald published the results of a survey of patients in five London hospitals. They found the ratio of Irish patients to Londoners was twice what might have been expected. They wrote the BCG before leaving Ireland should be considered for those migrants who were the immunologically ill-equipped descendants of rural stock, often in the tuberculin negative state and in the susceptible 15 to 25 year old age bracket. In 1956, Brett carried out a study of 32,000 examinees in a London mass radiography unit and found an excess instance of tuberculosis of at least three and probably nearer seven times in the Irish cohort than the control group. The conclusion was that in the face of declining tuberculosis mortality in Britain, the high incidence of active infectious disease in Irish-born residents in Britain was of epidemiological significance. Brett found extensive disease in 50% of Irish males and 20% of Irish female cases, but his study did not include hospital staff and he admits it may have underestimated the extent of tuberculosis in Irish females. 
1958 then, Springett extended the analysis outside London to Birmingham, finding that notifications of tuberculosis in Irish-born people were twice what might have been expected. At this stage, um, Springett's conclusion that the excess... I should have put that on earlier... <laughs> no, I shouldn't. At this stage, sorry, Springett's conclusion that the excess disease in Irish born was probably due to migration of uninfected adults into a relatively infectious environment was an echo of the prevailing paradigm. Again, the slow rate of BCG rollout in Ireland was criticised. So an analysis of the vaccinations carried out under the auspices of the National BCG Committee demonstrates the validity of the various criticisms. For the first seven years of the programme, the young adult age group consistently accounted for a very low proportion of vaccinations. Of 300,000 vaccinations performed by 1956, less than 30,000 were in young adults. And this slide just shows that in terms of available population, just 5% of the 640,000 young adults in the 15 to 29-year-old age group were vaccinated. Emigrants, of course, were largely located within this group. In 1959, Mairead Dunleavy, the doctor in charge of Dublin Corporation's BCG campaign, wrote that this deplorable situation was unnecessary as BCG was available everywhere in Ireland and in Dublin a special clinic had been instigated in 1957 for the protection of young adults. This clinic took place twice weekly during working after, sorry, outside working hours but the response was most disappointing. In the end, it was only by a process of attrition that young Irish emigrants were protected against tuberculosis. By the early 1960s, it was reckoned that many of those in the emigration age bracket would have been vaccinated during their school years. At this stage, the tuberculosis epidemic had effectively come to an end in both Britain and Ireland. Anne Hardy points out that by the 1950s, tuberculosis in Britain was a disease of young women and old men. This, um, as chemotherapy was consolidated, the 1960s witnessed a clear falling away of medical interest in tuberculosis, according to Hardy. By the 1970s in Britain, tuberculosis was a disease of elderly men, Asian immigrants, and by the 1990s of immigrants, AIDS victims, and the homeless. In Ireland, the epidemiological curve lagged behind Britain, but tuberculosis also became a disease of the elderly, the immunocompromised, and the socioeconomically disadvantaged. However, tuberculosis in the 21st century has caused outbreaks in the preschool and school-going population in Cork, where BCG vaccination was continued for a time. And finally, in a reversal of the situation from 1930 to 1960, tuberculosis in Ireland has become a disease of immigration rather than emigration. Current Irish guidelines on the prevention and control of tuberculosis recommend that healthcare workers arriving in Ireland or returning to Ireland from countries with a high incidence of TB should have a chest X-ray and a Mantu or tuberculin test. However, there is no compulsion. In 2010, discrepancies between the results of chest X-rays of Filipino and Indian nurses taken in their country of origin and later repeat x-rays taken in Ireland prompted a call in the Irish Medical Journal for a national tuberculosis screening programme for overseas nurses recruited to work in Ireland. The concerns expressed about the difficulties of ensuring adequate standards of medical testing and result, in, and result interpretation in the country of origin are remarkably similar to the concerns raised in the late 1950s in Britain. The perceived difficulties in, in policing emigration, as articulated by John, that led to Britain's pragmatic policies with respect to tuberculosis screening in the 1950s are now being played out in Ireland in 2011. The debate about screening and prevention of tuberculosis in migrant nurses continues. More than half a century after Irish emigrants and tuberculosis were emotive topics in Britain, the White Plague is increasingly being perceived in Ireland as a disease of aliens. 
In conclusion, studies carried out from 1930 to 1960 demonstrated the vulnerability of Irish emigrant nurse trainees to contracting tuberculosis. Both essentialist and non-essentialist readings were applied to the findings. In the late 1940s, BCG vaccination was offered to trainee nurses in Ireland and Britain as a sort of comfort measure. The Irish National BCG campaign, which began work in 1949, failed to reach sufficient numbers of Irish emigrants during the first decade of its work. As to the question posed at the beginning of this, victim or vector, the tuberculin status of Irish emigrant nurses would seem to indicate that they were victims, in that in the absence of natural or acquired immunity, they readily contracted tuberculosis when exposed to high infecting doses in hospital environments. However, in turn, they may also have acted as vectors, infecting their patients relatives and acquaintances at home and abroad with the mycobacterium tuberculosis that they had contracted in English hospitals.